Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Joining me today is Lisa Mason Ziegler of the Gardener's Workshop. Lisa is an author, teacher, industry leader, flower farmer, podcaster, and also a very good friend of mine. You might remember her from episode 28 last January when I had her on to talk all about seed starting. I highly recommend that episode, by the way, if you haven't already given it a listen. It's full of great information. With 25 years of growing under her belt, Lisa brings a wealth of knowledge and passion to everything she does. Today's episode is a hodgepodge grad bag of sorts (laughs) of topics I wanted to pick Lisa's brain about. For starters, we talk about the changes in hardiness zones that recently happened here in the U.S. and how cool annuals are even more important for farm resilience and profitability in the face of accelerating climate change. Lisa has a new book coming out in February called The Cut Flower Handbook that expands upon her previous and very, very, very popular book, (laughs) Cool Flowers. This is going to be a great reference source for new farmers and gardeners who are getting a handle on what will grow well for them in their climate. In our chat, she gives some specific tips from the book for growing Bells of Ireland, a crop that has flummoxed me personally for many seasons. I'm looking forward to giving Bells a try again with Lisa's expert advice in mind. We shifted focus then to a broader ecological perspective and discussed the importance of planting native hedgerows. These natural boundaries become vital ecosystems, providing refuge for beneficial insects, birds, and other wildlife. Lisa's advocacy for incorporating native hedgerows into gardens is a call to action for all growers, farmers, and gardeners alike to foster biodiversity and establish a harmonious relationship between manicured human landscapes and a more wild and natural border. If you want to dive deeper into this particular topic, check out episode 24 with Dr. Doug Tallamy. Today, we also touch on mulching for better soil health, weed suppression, and perennial establishment. And then last but not least, we tackle the topic of frost cloth, which, while not very sexy or regenerative, (laughs) seemed like a timely subject for listeners in the Northern Hemisphere. Frost cloth can be a total pain in the beep. (laughs) Since Lisa does not have any hoop houses or greenhouses at her farm, she relies solely on frost cloth for season extension. I figured she'd be a good person to give you tips on which kind to use, when to put it on, when to take it off, and how to secure it and store it. Lisa also has a YouTube video I'm going to link to in the show notes if you need a visual aid for this particular part. Like I said, it's a bit of a grab bag episode, but I know you'll find more than a few gems in here. If you're like me, you've been spending a lot of time the past few weeks reflecting on the good and the not so good of 2023 and thinking about all the ways you'll evolve in 2024. January is such a great time for learning and making changes. 
Would you like to learn and grow together? Over on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network, there are several online short courses that are perfect for completing in a winter's day. For the month of January, Ruffin members can get three short courses for just $300. Follow the link in the show notes to access that special bundle. It's an exclusive offer you can only get the link to um, if you're a Ruffin member. If you're not already a Ruffin member and you want to access this special course bundle, just sign up to be a member first and then go back to the link in the show notes to grab that bundle. Ruffin membership is just $20 a year, and that goes towards the making of more episodes here. So it is money well spent if you enjoy listening to this podcast. Before we dive into our chat with Lisa, I wanted to give a quick shout out here to those of you that left a review for the podcast. M7, William9190, and Melissa S. in Kansas all made me smile with your kind words. It's really great to get your reviews because it helps me know I'm doing a good job. So please share yours on Apple Podcasts too, that's the best place, or wherever you're listening. And please, please, please do me a favor and share this podcast with others so more people can learn about regenerative growing. Thank you, friends. And with that, let's hear from Lisa Mason Ziegler of The Gardener's Workshop. Welcome back to the podcast, Lisa. You are a fan favorite and a dear friend of mine, so it's always fun to chat with you. So thank you for coming back on with me today. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're so welcome, Jenny. But thank you. It's always a pleasure to chat as friends yes. and kindred spirits. And I consider us the flower hustlers. Ooh, so I like that term. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, so yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, well, and there's always so much that we can talk about. Our worlds overlap in a lot of ways, but yeah, we have a lot of complementary um, viewpoints and things like that. And you just have such a wealth of knowledge. So there's so much I want to dive into today, including mentioning that you have a new book out, which is part of what prompted this conversation. So you have um, coming out in February, January, in February. Yeah, yeah. The, February 2024. Okay, the Cut Flower Handbook, which is going to be your third third book. Third? Yeah. <laughs> tell us tell us a little yeah. bit about that before we get too down a rabbit hole with some of the other things. Sure. So my two previous books tell a little piece of mm. growing cut flowers, you know, one little look into a window. And um, I really wanted to have a book um, for that for that message I get every day from somebody is I mm. want to start a cut flower garden. How, where, you know, what do I grow? And then when do I cut it? I wanted to have a book to say, here's the book. Right. <laughs> you know, and, I'm, and I'll tell you, Jenny, um, something that was really important to me that's in this book is um, to help people understand about stage to harvest, mm, which I see yeah. is a really big issue in our industry right now. You know, we have so many new growers mm -hmm. and I mean, I'm so glad for that, but that is something that I see a lot of people struggling with. And so the book, you know, has like 66 featured flowers and we've included stage to harvest images and talk about it and try to share any little quirks and conditioning needs. And yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, if you want to grow cut flowers, whether you're a home gardener or a flower farmer, yeah. this is the book for you. Yeah, it's definitely such a great, um, I've had a chance to go through it already for those listening. Uh, I got a nice sneak peek, which I feel very lucky for. Uh, it's nice that it is so approachable. It's, it's definitely like if anybody asks me like, 
and says, I'm starting a new cut flower farm. What do I do? Or I'm starting a cutting garden. This is definitely going to be the book that I'm going to recommend to them because it's so detailed and organized, like really well organized, which is um, a huge help to people when you're just struggling to get your head wrapped around so many things. And I love the crop profiles. So um, let, let's let's talk about one specific like crop profile in there just to give people a taste of what's what's available. And the stage to harvest is really super valuable. I loved seeing that in there. So you have like a Bells of Ireland crop profile. So let's talk about Bells of Ireland just to say what's in the book and then also a little pointers for those listening. Um, there was a lot more info in that crop profile than I even knew myself. So like you said that you soak the seed to break open the embryo. And I was like, oh, I never soaked the seed. Huh. <laughs> so things like yeah, that. It- um, when when we commence when I commenced to write this book, um, you know, I don't think that we thought that the the crop the profiles would have be quite so juicy. Mm. But as it happened, and you know, I had a co-author, um, Jess Jessica Graven, who was actually one of our students. She's gone through all of our courses. <laughs> you know, she was such a great help to other students in our private Facebook groups. Jenny, literally, I reached out to her and say, "Are you?" like looking for a job. <laughs> and she became a part of the TGW team and she's deep knowledgeable. And anyway, her part of the book was really doing the research uh. and she learned so much good stuff um, to add alongside our experiences that it was really, really good. So yeah, so the profiles kind of grew out of control, but I think that's going to be a favorite well, part. Yeah, I'm going to say as a seasoned grower, I was learning stuff about Bells of Ireland. I mean, I didn't read all the profiles. I'm going to be honest sure. about it, but like sure. I, I dove into a couple of them of, of crops that I sometimes have trouble getting to germinate or I don't know how to get them to thrive. Um, and this was one of the ones where I was like, look at that. There's like, there's always something new to learn and, and hats off to both you and Jessica for for coming up with the juicy details. I think the crop profiles are very, very, very helpful. So so well, tell thanks. us a, a little uh, bit more about Bells of Ireland to help us crack the code sure. on Bells of Ireland. Yeah. So I think cracking the code really is you hit the nail on the head. Um, those little seeds look like little pieces of buckwheat. You know, they're really hard little yeah. things. And if you think about, you know, you and I talk about seeds sprouting all the time, but mm-hmm. it's like, Think about that little precious sprout inside there, that little embryo trying to crack Mm. through that hard shell. And none of us water appropriately, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody waters their seed bed enough. And so, you know, I learned about soaking those years ago. And it like overnight took me from a 2% germination (laughs) to 100%. We have to thin bells so much. Um, so that's just one of the little tidbits. And, you know, for us here in the South, and of course, you have to also know that if this is all outdoor growing stuff, mm-hmm. because I am a garden grower, I don't have any houses mm-hmm. of any type. And one of the challenges that I always had with bells is they would like start getting spots. Yeah. You know, we learned um, that they get all kinds of diseases. And that has allowed me to know as soon as a Bells of Ireland gets tall enough, which I share in the book, the minute it's tall enough to be usable, we're cutting them. Ah. We don't wait. Oh, maybe it'll get six inches taller or um, because they're fabulous bouquet building. Yeah. Um, they're branchy and we don't strip those little leaves oh, off you don't. the top. Okay. Our, I wanted to ask. No, do we you strip? do not. Okay. No. And because that's like so t- I tried. Mm-hmm. I will be honest. I tried in the beginning. 
But then I just decided, you know what, if I'm going to grow these, that is not a profitable timeline. No, not at so all. So I took them to our first, um, our, our first florist and they were like, oh my gosh, these are amazing. They loved it that way. Mm. So um, anyway, so, you know, learning that we do best with sewing them out in the garden and um, when to cut them and how to cut them just really, really revolutionized us. And, you know, there's just nothing that smells like a Bells of Ireland. See, I, I never have enough of them to actually appreciate the fragrance. So I'm glad to hear that it gets better if you grow more of them. Because I struggle with this crop. I, this is a crop that I just cannot seem to actually grow. One, because I could never get good germination. Um, two, yeah. it's like it's like one of those weird things where it's like, are we warm enough? Are we too cold? You know, that like winter sowing is so marginal for where we used to be, though we'll talk about uh, hardiness though changing but it was just a little bit marginal so it was a little bit of a risk every time and then yeah the the disease man the disease is really challenging when the rust comes on but I never thought about just like cut them and and be done with it so yeah sure so you know Jenny with you growing in structures you know I would see so we direct sew that was the way that we found success with bells is direct sewing and not starting no transplanting it doesn't work right and we fall plant them I mean I have done all kinds of experiments trying to get them to sprout indoors, but I just can't manage it in my setup. So direct sewing works beautifully. And I would think direct sewing in a hoop house would be incredibly successful Mm. after you soaked them and your disease would be so much less because you didn't have rain. Right. right. Okay. You know, Um, so I would think, you know, that would be awesome. And, you know, when I wrote the book, Cool Flowers, it lists in there the zones that we knew they were hardy to. Of course, that's all changed. Mm -hmm. And because they anticipate this book becoming international, I couldn't use zones. I had to use temps. Yeah. And yet so... But I know we listed zone seven in cool flowers. I know of growers in zone six that fall planted bells of Ireland with great success. I think they use lightweight row covers, Okay, but it was worth the taller stems, earlier blooms and all the benefits of fall planting. So, yeah. 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 And it, it's worth noting that Bells of Ireland does not like heat. So for those of us that live in zones that do get really warm in the summer and that heat up really fast, it's a tricky crop, but it's also a fantastic florist crop um, and just bouquet yeah. builder, like you said. So it's worth worth cracking the code. And now that I've read um, your crop profile on Bells of Ireland, I'm going to give it another shot. <laughs> and I, I think you're right. In the tunnels, it'll be really good. But I'd never get good enough seed germination to feel like I could give up that valuable tunnel space. So I'm going to start soaking my seeds. (laughs) Yeah. Do some soaking and just don't, you know, um, and I have even been known to leave them for a couple of days soaking because you forget about them and they still germinate. They're really quite easy to sprout once you, once that shell is softened. Okay. All right. Good to know. So it's that kind of material that's in the book, um, the cut flower handbook by Lisa Ziegler. Uh, But we hit on it really quick and I want to go back to it because it's a a valuable conversation to have for those of us that are in the U.S. and have abided by the USDA hardiness zones uh, previously. Previously, that has shifted <laughs> recently and will continue to shift. For the record, I don't think this is like a one-time shift that we're going to see in our lifetime. I think that in I... another 10 years, it's going to shift again, maybe even less than 10 years. Ugh. Um, 
So you wrote the book Cool Flowers, and now you have the Cut Flower Handbook, and it's all about cool annuals who, you know, have a specific margin of comfort in terms of um, temperatures over the winter for those of us that get winters. How do you think this is going to impact? I mean, what are you what are you anticipating or how are you uh, coaching students and, and mentoring people to shift with their hardiness zone change? Sure. Well, it's very unfortunate for our environment, but it's really good news for people that <laughs> want to grow more cool flowers because all it simply means is that more people are going to be able to fall plant mm-hmm. cool season hardy annuals. The benefits of planting in the fall are so phenomenal. Earlier bloom, more well-established, twice as tall stems in many cases, many more stems and more disease and pest resistance Mm -hmm. because they're so well-established when they hit spring, right? So this just means, like for instance, for all these years, um, I have literally lived on the line of 7B and 8A, and it literally depended on which way the wind blew in Mm. winter, what we end up being. So I was always, because of cool flowers and talking about zones all the time, um, I would have to say 7B slash 7A. I'm so happy now, but I'm just an 8A. (laughs) You know, it's like I've graduated to simpler talk, (laughs) but it really doesn't, I mean, it's already been affecting us, right? Mm. You've been living in that zone. Yes. So you're already living it. All it means now is that perhaps there are more things that are winter hardy, whether that be perennials, mm-hmm. you know, and trees and I'd shrubs and all kinds of stuff. Um, but for cool flowers, it means that your inventory of selection to grow in the fall has just grown some. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always, especially, you know, I know that you have a lot of season growers that listen to your podcast. You know, I am all about pushing the envelope. If there is, you know, if I'm in zone eight now and it says it's, oh, well, I wouldn't be a good example. Let's say I'm living in zone six and there is something that it says like zone, like Bells of Ireland is only really went party to zone seven. And I lived in six, which is more north, colder, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You better believe I'd say, you know what? I'd be willing to use hoops and lightweight row cover if it meant that I could get Bells of Ireland. So I think more options. We're going to have bigger crops in spring because of this shift. I mean, that's the, you know, the lining on this bad bullet. Well, and it's also possibly our saving grace in that as climate change pushes in harder on a very, you know, any growing, anybody who grows, whether you're a gardener or a farmer, the intensity of summertime heat is just climbing and it makes growing something in the middle of the summer so much harder. The pest pressure is worse. The disease pressure is worse for here in Philadelphia. You know, we seem to be in a constant torrential downpour. You know, there's all sorts of things that come in the summertime that can make your crops vulnerable. But if you can do this winter growing, like start in the fall, get everything established, have it grow well over the winter and get a really abundant and profitable spring under your belt, then if the summer yeah. doesn't go well for you, it's okay. <laughs> so I think it's it's valuable for us to um, sort of dig in a little harder even with the, the cool annuals and really test. So yeah, like add Bells of Ireland back to the crop list. Jenny, here we go. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you know that there are actually farmers now that that is how their business models have changed. Mm-hmm. Jonathan and Megan Lee only harvest 
from like very early spring, they now end their harvest at May 31st. Oh, they don't wow. even go to June anymore. Wow. Wow. And it's primarily cool flowers, ranunculus, tulips, and anemones. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because they can get a bigger bang for their buck then, and it allows them to take the summer off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's it's pretty dadgum amazing. And in the cut flower handbook, there's actually, I think this is right, 41 cool flowers in there. Okay. Um, the rest are warm season. So there are some in there and there are some that didn't fit. You know, there's never mm. enough room in a book to put everything you Ooh, need in there. Do you have any of those yeah. some that didn't fit on on the top of your mind that you can give well, us a Well, and actually, um, when folks purchase their book through the Gardener's Workshop, yeah. you actually get a bonus PDF download and oh. it's the that didn't make the book. Okay. And so that comes along with the purchase. Um, and we kind of give you the same juicy details on those flowers and by no fault of their own, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just, we just simply could not fit it squeeze all. them all. Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's good to know. Um, it, it would be really hard to pick which crops make it in and which don't. Yeah. I can yeah, totally understand that. So with this change and, you know, the climate is changing, we have no way to, to soften that blow um, in the immediate uh, future. And it's impacting the way things grow at our farm. And I know you told me earlier that because things have gotten warmer and rainier, that you are struggling with a new uh, beast at your farm, so to speak, <laughs> that has been really challenging uh, because it, it overtook your no-till bed. So let's dive into what what happened at your farm. Tell us that story. <laughs> Sure, sure. So, you know, as we got more educated um, and we dove into giving a portion of our farm over to no-till, I think it was four years ago. Mm. I said, okay. I mean, you were a big part of that. It's like, all right, if Jenny's doing it, I'll try it, you know? <laughs> and and so we've always been a conventional farmer, conventional just meaning low-till. We yeah. do till, but we do not pulverize our ground. I have always, I am very conscious of what's in there and it's very hurtful for me every time we till, <laughs> believe it or not. It's yeah. ridiculous. No, I know of, it would. I know you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so we took a small portion of our garden. It was nine beds. They're 50 feet long. And I said, and we hand built the beds. I mean, we, it was really quite, um, we made the pathways narrow so that would be less pathway to mm-hmm. maintain and try to keep clean because the challenge I already knew a big challenge that we would face is the perennial grasses that Mm -hmm. we have here in the South that are just like fire. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, they just spark and run really, really quickly. Mm. And um, so we were very diligent the first couple of years in really keeping our pathways clean. I mean, our pathways did not have vegetation growing in it, which is historically what the rest of our farm kind of does and we mow it. Um, And we were mulching the pathways with either bark because we've had trees taken down or leaves. And, um, you know, in the busyness of farming, as we all do, and, you know, and I'm not even in high production anymore, right? It's like last year we had this run of like a month of rain and really hot, which really seems, and it was probably late summer, probably Mm -hmm. July into August. Um, and we literally lost our pathways Mm. to perennial grasses and those perennial grasses literally jump up on the beds and run. And 
there is no real, I mean, you pull them, it's like pruning a cut flower. (laughs) They just regrow, right? So we, you know, we haven't done it yet right now. That no-till garden Mm -hmm. is covered in a black silage tarp, Mm, entire garden. To kill it off, yep. Well, to hope to kill it off. I'm telling you, down here south it just i mean in the summer if yeah. it was under tarp for eight weeks yes mm. um but it very quickly regrows and so we think that we're gonna have we're gonna be forced potentially mm-hmm. to till that to garden till because okay. because if we have vegetation growing in our pathways like like i think you do mm-hmm. yeah, um, living you just know your pathways and do maybe a little weed do y'all weed eat around your beds yeah, also sometimes we, we use a an edging tool to edge around the beds right. um at the beginning yeah. of the season before the crops are really big yeah just to cut through right. the, we have crabgrass like crazy so that's always been what we've struggled with for sure yeah yeah it's just it just seems like there's more of it than there is of us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because i would love nothing more than to just top our beds with a little more compost each year and plug some plants in. Um, anyway, so the verdict, it's not been tilled yet, okay. but that's what may be happening. Um, we'll see how the story goes. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I wanted to talk about this just so that we could, you know, I just want to let listeners know that no-till is a is an ideal, but it's not always a realistic goal. And there are times when it may fail. And then what do you do to problem solve that? I am curious with the tilling, I'm just hashing this out as we're talking, with the tilling, do you think that's going to chop up the grass and make it even worse somehow? Like that, it, I don't know what this particular grass does in terms of rhizomes or whatever that make it run. Sure. Yeah. Well, the actual, I mean, so we're in year 25, right, okay. of farming the same land, and we've always tilled. Mm-hmm. Bermuda grass has always been, which is a perennial grass mm-hmm. also. I mean, we know what that one is. We have not identified this other that <laughs> is just such a seed producer and Ugh. such a hunter. Um Anyway, we have always tilled. I know that tilling Bermuda grass makes a million little Bermuda grasses, mm-hmm. but it beats it back. It beats it back. Because okay. leaving it and pulling it, there I mean it's like, all right, what is the least mm-hmm. the lesser evil here? <laughs> right. Um and we pretty much keep Bermuda grass out of the, the centralized area of our big gardens. We always fight it on the edges. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean mm-hmm. it's just so interesting. Like right now there's probably a three foot pathway around the cool flower garden that's got beautiful chips. Mm. You won't be able to see those chips by May. Yeah. It'll just be soft, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just been our experience. Okay. And like, as I mentioned, we just, and when I say till, we typically only till two or three times okay. at the most. Okay. Um, and we, you know, cause we bring in so much compost, we just don't rely on tilling to chop up a bunch of mess. It's just getting rid of those weeds. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. So I know in um, the past few years, you had this new development go in that surrounds your farm. Like you used to have this very open, rural, uh, wide open space where it was like a horse farm or whatever. And then uh, developers bought it and literally your, your back door, so to speak, is now just a bunch of houses. And that must have disturbed the ecosystem so much. Do you think some of this extra additional pressure from things like Bermuda grass or whatever, this I, you know what I just thought about this that other grass is probably whatever turf grass they seeded into that development how much you want to bet maybe so. that's probably what it is it is 
that's how those things happen, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, maybe that's really changed your whole ecosystem by just having that additional pressure of of sort of conventional grass seeding kind of stuff happening nearby. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, you know, that whole deal. So the 40 acre horse boarding farm next to us, it was us and them were the last hmm. largest piece of undeveloped land in the city of Newport News, which has about 200,000 residents. It's not a huge city, but it's a good size. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so when Oliver's passed away, it was sold to a developer. I mean, we don't have agricultural zoning here Mm. anymore, although this used to be the biggest Mennonite farming community, right? Because it was non-agricultural zoning, the yearly real estate taxes are thirty were thirty-two thousand dollars a year just to wow. keep your land. Yeah, yeah. That's why Oliver boarded horses to right. pay tax bill, and so that's why nobody was able to really buy it and build a mansion in the middle of it. You know yeah. what I mean? It was yeah. it's not very functional. So anyway, yes, it totally disturbed um, the ecosystem here, and um, they literally had a pile of dirt where they had scraped the land, which is what happens when a development happens right next to our property. You can see images time to time in my social media that you see this orange in the background. Well, that is soil and it grew so much stuff. Right. I mean, weeds and junk and and probably natives too, but still, yeah. Exactly. And then they just blew right over, you know, because they never mowed them. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, I, there was just no way to even mow it. Stevie was like, I'll take the tractor over there and bush hog it because I was <laughs> having a stroke over all these watching oh, these plants develop yeah. the seeds that are going to like. I and mean, they're on a hill yeah. too. They're like up above yeah. here. So they're yeah. all going to come over. They're all going to yeah. wind blows and so, immediately it's a cloud. Wow. Oh. Yeah. But the, but the good thing that came out of that is it pushed us to really ramp up our farm's border. Yeah. And, um, I wanted to talk about you know. that, your native hedgerows that you put in to protect. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's let's dive into that juicy topic. So it's all about like it's a combination of native plants and the concept of a hedgerow as a way. There's so many benefits to putting a native hedgerow in around a farm or a garden, a growing space or your your lawn, for crying out loud, if you <laughs> If you're just yeah. a home, random homeowner uh, listening to this podcast, the native hedgerows um, do so much. So talk to us a little bit about that, Lisa. Yeah. So for all these years that I was farming, we never wanted to put up any kind of divider between us and that horse boarding farm. I mean, let's face it. It was like dreamland yeah. here, you know, yeah. cutting flowers with horses leaning over the fence. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was great. And so we knew four years before the development actually started that it was coming. Mm -hmm. And um, it was actually the year that I was writing Cool Flowers. I can remember looking out my window and seeing the first surveyor out there Um, and I almost died on the spot. I mean, I couldn't write for days anyway. um, So after I got over the initial shock, I had um, I was speaking at a conference where a native plant landscape designer spoke after me and I was like, oh, and we, it was here in Virginia. And I thought, holy cow, that girl has got to come. Yeah. And I invited Denise um, to actually come here and we walk, went over on the farm before they destroyed. The farm was 40 acres and it was broken into five acre paddocks, kind Mm -hmm. of, Mm -hmm. and it was broken up by 200 year old hedgerows. Wow. 
And I mean, they were amazing. I mean, it was just amazing. And I quickly learned that, you know, I knew that what was helping me grow organically here on my farm lived over there. Mm, mm. I mean, I, I, I was, I had read Doug Tallamy's book, you know, yeah. previously, Doug yeah. just brought it all to light for yep. me. So, which he was a podcast guest for the record. If anybody wants to go back here on No Till Flowers, yeah, we had him on. He is so, just, yeah. he changed my farm and world yeah. anyway. Um, so she came and we walked the hedgerows mm-hmm. to see what type of things were growing there so that we could provide similar, if not the same, to be able to support those that were mm-hmm. living there. And she made me a landscape plan, which is basically just a 50 foot run of a plan that we just did over and over and over okay, and over. Okay, just repeated it. Yeah. Farm. Okay. Yeah. And it's trees and shrubs, no perennials. Um, I've plugged in, you know, mountain mint in several places, but in general, it's a 20 foot wide. And it now I would say it's probably about seven or 800 feet um, around the farm. You know, maybe it's more than that. Anyway, wow. it's a lot. Yeah. Each year I add, you know, another 50 or 100 feet. Um, and our farm is blooming alive wow. with birds and um, just a lot of, you know, we have turtles like you do. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it's just brought and Steve is as much on board with this as I am. <laughs> I mean, it's just all about providing home base for the good yeah. stuff yeah. and not worrying about what's on the other side. Well, it's what's amazing is because you were able to implement this and get it going as the, you know, as they came in with the bulldozers, there was so much life over there in those old established hedgerows that desperately needed a home. And you yeah. were there to provide them with shelter and food. And what a gift. I mean, it's a gift for you in your garden, but what a gift to them, to all those creatures like that you, that you had the foresight to put that in. So I'm, I'm actually really touched by uh, what you did for all the other creatures. So thank you for doing that. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, um, you know, we, we watched, there's a raptor nest that Mm -hmm. was over there for eight years. We watched every year, the hawks and the great horned owls duked it out over Mm -hmm. who would have it go back and forth. And, you know, of course, we totally lost the raptors. Oh. Um, so we got 90 houses on nine, on 40 acres. Oh and um, just now, just this year, we have great horns <gasps> that have come back. They say it takes two to three years okay. for the for nature to come back after the, mm-hmm. the huge destruction. Um, and um, we have a perch here on our farm uh, on a telephone pole that we installed for the raptors. I mean, it was like a That's squirrel awesome. never dreamed. <laughs> Let me tell you the real truth about this. So when we didn't have houses next door, um, you would not find a rabbit or a squirrel out in my garden. I mean, they would never venture out there. Yeah. As probably about a year after the destruction was really going, all of a sudden we had squirrels and rabbits out in the field like we've never had. Literally, I have images and videos of squirrels sitting up on that perch. (laughs) Oh, that irony. I mean, it's like in your face, <laughs> right. Raptors, right? right. Um, so, but now it's starting to come back. I am just okay. really pleased to say we find piles of fur all the time now. Yay. <laughs> and yeah, so the Raptors are back and we welcome them. And they're the ones that eat rats mm-hmm. and squirrels and rabbits, the occasional bird, but they are in for, they're looking for a little bit more meat. Yeah, they um, want the fur. And so, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's coming back and yeah, we're really, we're really honored to take care of this place. And, um, 
you know. That's awesome to hear. It is, it is huge. And and that leads to um, an additional point about having hedgerows in general, how much they create habitat for are allies. You know, the raptors are an ally that help with uh, rodents, you know, and, you know, browsers, the browsers who come in. Um, But they also, the hedgerows provide habitat for the um, carnivorous songbirds that come in and eat the beetles and um, the grasshoppers and things like that. So you can't just, well, you you can, but you'll regret it. You you should not make a sterile all production space. That is the point that I'm trying to make is that you need to leave room for these sort of wild and native kind of dense, thickety, uh, unkempt areas, because that's where our best pest control can live. Um, I know both your farm and my farm, Lisa, we don't use any pesticides. We don't do any pest control except for relying on um, the the food web to balance itself out for everybody to eat each other <laughs> and find. And so nothing can overwhelm. It basically is a pretty, a pretty uh, uh, gruesome way of putting it. We're just looking for everybody to eat each other. But that is that is uh, the way nature does it, that we're just letting nature do it. But you can't expect nature to do that. The great horn owls are not going to be there. The red tail hawks are not going to be there if there's no food source. Um, and that's why when the development came, it all went away and they couldn't live there. But it's it's really exciting to hear that they're back. Um, and I hope other people will embrace you know, that you got to leave some wild stuff around people. <laughs> That's how you deal with pest well, control. And, you know, Jenny, I, one of the things that really drew me to Doug was his analogy of, no, I'm not asking you to go home and rip out everything that's in your yard that is a non-native. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that when you need to make it, when you're adding to mm-hmm. consider natives and that's what really, it's like, okay, you know, you don't want to go all hog, you know, people say, oh, well, I'll just have to take everything out. It's like, no. You know, as you're adding and as you refurbish, I mean, every landscape should be edited about every 10 to 15 years. Um, And, you know, we're in that process now. I walk with a chainsaw every January Mm -hmm. and I'm pruning stuff that doesn't, you know, there's really, you know, pushing his neighbor out. But sometimes I'll cut something at the ground. It's time for you to go. You know, that's plants weren't made to last forever. And um, yeah, so we love watching them eat each other out there. Yeah. Literally. And and also, I just want to back up what you said, um, that it doesn't all have to be native. So at my farm, I have lots of non-native shrubs. I think I think having native hedgerows is really valuable um, because it does support specific uh, species that need those specific yes. natives. But I also notice how much life thrives, particularly bird life thrives in my spirea, in my hydrangeas, in my viburnums, you know, that aren't natives. There's some of those that are native. But um, it's just about having... a safe place a for mix. birds. Yeah, like uh, uh, not just all zinnias. Like I'm, I'm, they're beautiful. Right. Don't get me wrong, but you can't just grow all annuals. It is really right. important to the whole farm ecosystem to have those woody um, structural plants that provide a safe place for um, birds, in particular, to get in and out of. So, um, yes, and and different perennial grasses, not the bad kind, but some some per- perennial clumping grasses are really good too for uh, ground beetles and um, places for turtles and uh, snakes and other things to hide out too is also really good because they're excellent slug control. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. 
Now, when you were establishing these native hedgerows, one of the things I wanted to um, pull out of your new book, The Cutflower Handbook, is the concept of mulching and how different different ways you can mulch, uh, when you should mulch, where you should mulch, things like that. So I'm assuming with the native hedgerows, you had to do a lot of mulching. <laughs> or did, how did you get them established in the first place? Did you put them in landscape fabric? Did you just mulch? Did you do a lot of weeding? Like, tell us, tell us a little bit about the process. Sure. So, you know, I am a big believer in the timing of planting, you know, really dictates how much care and what's needed after you plant. And so we've always been um, pretty strict about we only plant trees, shrubs and perennials in the fall. Mm -hmm. Um, That way they just spend the winter building roots and not having to grow on the top. And also in the fall we have access to a ton of free mulch, which Mm. is leaves. Mm. And so we um, literally purchased, I mean, I think the first row we put in 475 feet and about 12, 15 feet wide. That's a big And it was mixed trees and shrubs. It was, it was pretty big deal. I mean, (laughs) I rented one of those machines and actually you can go to my YouTube channel and watch. There is a native border video on there about what we're talking about. Anyway, I bought one of those, I've rented one of those big augers. Oh, the and, big things. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, because we were planting 15-gallon trees, you know? Uh, I mean, life is short. Do not buy young trees. Right, right. Or little trees or shrubs, in fact. And so we planted, and then we proceeded to gather thousands of bags of leaves and just dumped them from the fence out about 20 feet. Okay. And that was the extent, and they were watered when we planted them very deeply. Okay. But we planted them in October. Mm -hmm. It's cool. And we're going into winter. We get our fair share of rain, snow, and ice in the wintertime. And they were never irrigated again. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying we didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And we had 100% survival. That is another benefit of buying mature plants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we dumped leaves and made them about 10 or 12 inches deep. Okay. Um, And that second year, we had a little weediness going on, but I didn't do anything about it. I mean, we had, we're too, we're a flower farm, you know, <laughs> busy. Right. No time <laughs> for that. that. But, and what has happened now, we're five years away from when the first one was planted, that first border. And they're finally shading out, you know, there's very little weed growth. Although we do have blackberry brambles, but we know how important those are to birds. Mm-hmm. Although they'll take a grown man down if you get tangled in them. I do keep them edited from the edges so that people don't get hurt. But we have areas that you would die. I mean, I could put somebody in there and you'd never (laughs) hear or see them again. Um, Because that's what the birds just adore that. They want that dense. And you just, in a city setting like I'm in, the secret to be able to do this is you have to keep your edges manicured. That's what keeps people from complaining about you. You know, if you got a weedy mess and it looks like a weedy mess, all you got to do is mow the edge and it looks like a hundred percent. It's like getting a haircut, right? Yeah. It is very possible in almost all homeowners association. My recommendation would be to move. Um, (laughs) There is no way to fix that, you know? Yeah. Um, But it's really, you can, anybody can do it anywhere. Okay. So then with the mulching in particular, did you... Do you go back and mulch again, like regularly or how are you maintaining? That in my mind. In your mind, yeah. Okay. I wanted to. I wanted to. It's like every year I say, oh my gosh, this year we're going to get so many extra bags of leaves. I'm going to make leaf mold. I've got cages ready mm-hmm. and waiting this year. I've, I'm a step ahead. Um, 
and we're going to mulch the hydrangea groves and the native border. And we just, we, there's just not enough manpower yeah. as you know, Jenny. I mean, yeah. the working garden gets first seat on okay. everything. Okay. Okay. And, um, so no, we did not ever mulch again. That's why I'm a believer in 10 to 12 inches of mulch because that way, guess what? you got a couple of years right. to get back if you needed to. Yeah. If you're going to go to the trouble of mulching, you might as well make it a really deep mulch. I mean, you're already going yeah. to the to the hassle of getting it all, moving it all, um, yeah. all of that. So, okay. So use leaves as a mulch, which I also do here at my farm. We use a ton of leaves on our... Um, on our overwintered dahlias. That's like the primary, oh, yeah. what I use them on. I get mine in uh, by the truckload from a landscaper who, you know, if you can make friends with a landscaper and you have a place to pull up one of their big, big trucks that they, you know, they suck them into with one of those vacuum things. Right. Um, it makes it really easy. Or I used to do what you did, Lisa, which is go collect bags off of the street for sure. have people dump them off. But um, so, but I use the leaves on dahlias and then I use the leaves on herb herbaceous perennials a lot. So like yeah. our Baptisia, Phlox, um, uh, Veronica, stuff like that. Uh, we use the leaves for that. Then you use wood chips, I assume. Do you use wood chips much? I only use wood chips when it's from a tree that's been cut down on our property mm. or a landscaper, um, you know, was on our street cutting down a tree. And I'll say, hey, do you want to back up over here and dump those? Um, my trouble is because we have a dog, oh. um, I don't ever want to let anybody get into the habit of coming to our farm and you have to open a drive through gate to get in with a vehicle in the back part. We just have never really kind of opened that door to people. Yeah. But sometimes we do. So the wood chips, I don't buy wood chips by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. And they are much more labor intensive mm. because they have to be either scooped with a tractor, but then how... You can't always get to where you need to get on a tractor. Right, right. So it's wheelbarrowing. Ask, you know, Andrew that helps us on one day a week here on the farm that works in the warehouse. That was his job <laughs> for two months this past year was just wheelbarrowing mulch, yeah. you know, because we yeah. had um, but I'll use bark. I'm just not willing to pay for it. Okay. Yeah, no, I wouldn't pay for it either. I just get tree services yeah. to dump it. Right. Um, and yeah. I actually just bought a, um, wood chipper for the farm because we have so much woodland on the farm and constantly have trees that are coming down or need pruned or whatever. So uh, I decided I might as well get a chipper and, and make them myself. But, um, that's a recent addition. Plus, I bought the chipper because I have over an acre in woody productions, like shrubs. And I now that they're so big and established, I have to do so much winter pruning. And I'm getting these massive piles of um, wow. just branches and twigs and all the things, which were cool, for the record, for wildlife habitat, like making yes. brush piles yes. for wildlife habitat. But I'm kind of out of space. <laughs> I have so many brush I was going to say, you only have so much room, <laughs> right? right? I mean, there is a limit. Right. Yeah. So so I am going to start chipping that material and just having that. I think the value of wood chips is I do like to use wood chips on um, our woodies, on the shrub crops, because the wood chips last longer. Um, right. And then right. also uh, the wood chips tend to bring in a lot of mycelium, a lot of fungal growth, which it's been shown right. um, that shrubs benefit so much from mycelium networks. Um, and I don't feel like the leaves do that quite the same way as wood chips do. So I, 
will very slowly convert <laughs> um, to wood chip mulch uh, around my farm, but it is going to be a long process. So. <laughs> well, it's just right. It's whatever works for you, yeah. right? Is yeah. I mean, you getting a chipper will make that more doable. And before yeah. you know it, you'll be having a system and it'll just be working beautifully. You yeah, know? yeah. It's all about systems. Uh, one of the systems that I do use to uh, move mulch uh, a little bit more efficiently, not super efficiently, and maybe you do this too, Lisa. I learned this from... Uh, I think it was Firth Farms. Um, but anyway, I have three wheelbarrows. They're all identical wheelbarrows. And I line them up touching each other like across, like, um, you know, just picture three wheelbarrows side by side. Right. And then that's the width of a scoop of the tractor. So I use the tractor to scoop the mulch, uh, one big scoop of mulch, and then dump it over those three wheelbarrows. And you end up with like three wheelbarrows full of mulch without awesome. having to hand scoop it all. Um, yeah, that makes it go so much faster. I mean, still, you got to wheelbarrow it all around. But at least there's no scooping, right. like shoveling, which is what breaks your back. So. Exactly. Yeah. And pushing a wheelbarrow is very good to build your thighs. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Excellent cardio work. <laughs> so do you have other forms of mulch you use at your farm? Um, anything else? To... So, well, we used to, um, back before the systemic herbicides became such mm. a problem in straw and hay, because um, I have straw farmers in my family. I, oh. I kind of had access to all the free straw I would ever want. Oh, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> they, they, oh, they use big chemicals. They do. Okay. You know? Even your and family. we got educated about that. I stopped using it. So we used to use a lot of straw here. Okay. Um, and I, to my knowledge, we never experienced any of the die out issues that we see people have happen. I mean, I don't use manures anymore for that same yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, but so we use leaves and we do not shred them. They, okay. We take them straight from the bags. You know, we drag them. It really is super convenient. If I can get the sides put on my pickup truck, like so we look like the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, with the wooden rails. <laughs> I love it. And so pile them high. We back right up to whatever garden row. Typically, it takes 16 to 20 bags to do a bed, to do a pathway like I want it. Okay. Thick, deep, and just really generous. Yeah. Um, but we do not, because that's a common question we get is why I'm saying this. We do not mulch them. We take okay. them straight out of the bag and just the bags are easy to drag. We have our side knife. We cut them, we dump them. We're done, you know, uh, and sod knife. That's so, see, talk about systems that in and of itself is like, I know to you, you're like, of course it's sod knife, Jenny, what are you talking about? But it, it, oh. I used to dump bags and it's like such a process to try to get this out of the bag. And, oh, oh my man. gosh. Jenny. <laughs> so if you don't have one, I'll have to send you one. I, we live off of our Japanese sod yeah. knives. I mean, they're yeah. on our website and we have a little baby one even, but stabbing and dragging yeah, yeah. You, you can dump them in seconds wow. and, um anyway so leaves are my go-to okay right okay um, and then i use wood when we have it yep. available um and then we use straw and i have we generally don't do this now i'm trying to think i don't think there's any left on the farm i for probably two or three years tried using landscape fabric mm -hmm. on my pathway mm -hmm. I've never grown in landscape fabric. Okay. You know, I don't grow perennials. Right. So I think a lot of people that get started with that um, really find it useful, maybe mm -hmm. at least in the beginning um, for perennials. But I never did that. 
But I thought, okay, you know, we're fighting these grasses, right, in our pathways. Um, and it was torture for like three years because, I mean, we harvest a lot of flowers yeah, here. Yeah. And when you're standing on landscape fabric, stripping and stripping and stripping and stripping, you have debris now all over the landscape right. fabric. You either have a person that sweeps it, and it's not just an easy sweep because there's so much of it, mm-hmm. or heaven forbid it rain on it before you get it out of there and it becomes a slippery, dangerous mess. Yeah. Um, so we did that for a couple of years. We don't do that anymore. You know, we just don't do that. We just found it to not, you know, we know now that landscape fabric permanently installed kills soil yeah right? it really does yeah and it clogs and water does not permeate it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. after a couple of years so I mean it's not this I think we thought it was going to be this like magic bullet and whenever you think that about anything you tend to ignore what it's supposed to be fixing and then all of a sudden I actually met a man you're going to love this I met a guy at University of Maryland I was there speaking at a conference and he had a business in Maryland. And guess what his business was? Oh, boy. Oh, I don't know. He, there was a landscaping conference going on right next to the farming conference. And he was from over there. He said, so we're getting lunch, right? So we're yeah. all standing in line in the cafeteria. And I said, so he said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a flower farmer. And, you know, people love to talk about that. I said, so yep. what do you do? I'm trying to change the subject, <laughs> right? Yep. And he said, I have a business. He said, I used to just be a landscaper, but now I specialize. All I do is landscape fabric removal, removal. From, home, from homes because it is so tangled up with weeds and mess growing in it. Right. Which you can't, people can't get it unless you have a tractor, you're yeah. not going to get it out. And that was like, this is an epiphany. <laughs> this is like, anyway, so landscape fabric. Oh um, my goodness. In general, wow. And I think people perhaps yeah. in different regions Maybe it works really great for you. If it works great for you, go for go it. For it. But yeah. it is a lot. I find it easier yeah. to not use yeah. it and have less weeds. Let's yeah. put it that way. Right. I, and I mean, I'm in the South. <laughs> right. I, I think, I mean, that's that's my take on it. I don't grow any annuals in landscape fabric at all. And have very. I'm trying to get rid of all perennial landscape fabric around my farm, too, and go into mulching because of what it does to the soil. It just, the soil under, right. mul- uh, under landscape fabric, I have some that's been down for... Oh gosh, how long have I been doing this now? So I'm listening down for 15 years and, and it's just dead. It's dead. It's so dead under there. So it's like, wow, my plants don't want to grow in this. Um, And I was noticing some, some health issues with some shrubs uh, that have been in too long. Anyway, all of that aside, um, I think it was just for a while there, maybe five, 10 years or whatever, it was just this ubiquitous thing that anybody that got into flower farming thought you had to put landscape fabric down. And I'm not just saying a little landscape fabric. I'm talking like a whole half acre from side to side is like one full sheet. Well, not a full sheet, but you know, it's just nothing but black landscape fabric. And then, um, make holes and plant into that. And it's going to be weed free, but that is, even if that does actually work somewhere, which if, if it does work for you who's listening, that is fantastic. But at the end of the day, your soil health is just going to diminish year after year after year. Um, and so maybe that'll work for five years. Uh, but at a certain point, you're going to start noticing 
I would think at least, again, it's all about context and I don't actually have this experience, but I would guess that your uh, crop vigor is going to really suffer after a while. And it's one of the reasons I avoid it. Um, I also just think it looks ugly. I got to be honest. I feel like it just, yeah. I don't want to work. That's with what that. happened. I had perhaps one of the most beautiful, cool flower gardens about four, well, four years ago. Yeah. And the, the pathways were in the landscape. Mm. And I got up on a tall ladder. I mean, it was just gorgeous. Yeah. I got up on a tall ladder, do all kind of photography, and all I could see was this landscape, landscape fabric. Yep. And I mean, the plants were growing in either no mulch because they were direct sown mm-hmm. or in the biodegradable film, which, you know, is biodegradable and goes mm-hmm. away. It doesn't, you don't even really see it after the plants grow up. And yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, if more yeah. power to you, whatever works for yep. you works. But that's been my experience with landscape fabric. Yeah. It was more work than its solution. Yeah. And and if you're mulching, mulching feels like a lot of work, um, but I'm not sure that it's that much more work than um than landscape fabric until you put it all down and pull it all up. But I'll exactly. leave I'll leave that for debate among individuals. But what lands or what uh, mulching is doing is it's building organic matter in your soil. And and you cannot tell me in any way is landscape fabric doing that. <laughs> so right. so it is ultimately uh, a good thing um, to add that mulch. Another thing that I know that you do a lot of in your garden or in your farm is because you grow outdoors only. You don't have a greenhouse. You don't have a hoop house. So you use a ton of frost cloth. And we're recording this here. Um, Listeners are going to hear this in the beginning of January. So when everybody is struggling with frost cloth, if you're using it or you don't know how to use it or whatever. So I wanted to just kind of do frost cloth 101 with you, who has so many years of experience with it, because it's what you've relied on for season extension. So let's talk about if you don't mind, um, things like, well, we can ch- talk about like there's various weights of frost cloth. How do you hold down frost cloth? How do you support frost cloth? When do you put it on? When do you take it off? All these things. So enlighten us, Lisa. Do tell. <laughs> sure. So the first thing out of the gate is I don't rely on frost cloth for cold protection. Mm. I don't really grow any cool season hardy annuals over winter that don't survive my winter. My winters, meaning, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, they, it's going to go down to 16 tonight and, you know, this is not going to survive. So I, that's the first thing. And I really recommend when people are starting out growing cool season, hardy annuals, particularly fall planted or winter planted for people that live in areas where the ground doesn't freeze, um, you know, follow the rules of the concept when you're learning and start you know, going outside of the box after you've got something, you know, under your belt. So we don't use row cover for cold protection, even though it does give four degrees. Um, I choose after many years of using a lot of different types um, or different weights, um, I use ag 19, which is the lightest weight. And I do that because it gives me the most options. We use row cover even in the growing season for pest 
prevention, you know, keeping bean beetles off of the string beans and different things. And, you know, if you can't use the heavyweight stuff for that because it blocks wind, you know, air and um, light. Yeah, under there. Yep. And even the lightweight gets hot underneath there, but it's a big, big difference. So the Ag-19 allows 85% of light transmission and moisture. And so I primarily use row cover for wind protection. We are, you know, that's one thing I was hoping those darn houses would Oh, kind it of stop. Yeah, the change. winds. Yeah, it didn't. They did not. Oh. It's still windy as all get out here. And it's because the river's 2,500 feet away, I guess. Okay, and we just up. get a lot of blow. Um, so we use it for a lot of wind protection because once you install row cover, if you've not been a person that's used it, um, once you install row cover and see how it ripples <laughs> constantly, you realize those little plants out there are just taking a whooping mm-hmm. and it's a cold whooping at that, you know, <laughs> all winter long. And I think because I was so afraid back in the beginning when I first started growing cool flowers, I was so terrified I was going to kill them and they were going to die from cold. Mm. That's how I got to using row cover. Okay. And I, because I started using row cover, that allowed me to be hugely successful with cool season hardy annuals. However, the weight that I use doesn't really give them cold protection. Okay. So, okay. It's just wind I protection. I use Ag-19. Okay. And I use it primarily for wind protection and varmint protection. Mm. And I have a perfect example to share. So we know the certain, you know, there's always those one flower or two that the deer just go right to, right? Well, Godisha, for anybody mm. that needs to know, is one of those. Godisha and Campanula and Craspedia, hairy balls. I mean, um, billy balls. Billy balls, yeah. All three of those, the deer will walk past everything else to eat those things to the ground. So um, we have always used row cover on our beds from pretty much soon after the time that we planted them right through winter just to protect the rabbits from eating the squirrels, mm-hmm. but primarily the deer. Well, it's been so dadgum warm here in southeastern Virginia. Um, we covered them. So what is this? The end of December. Yeah, the end. We've had covered probably for six weeks, six or eight weeks. We had to, I had to uncover them last week because we were going up into the high sixties oh, in the afternoon. Goodness. Plants were just too happy. Yeah. They were growing like mad. And when I uncovered them, I told Bobo, I said, you know, say goodbye to this Godisha. Right. Because come eat it. I, I, there's a video. I posted a reel <laughs> showing it. I mean, and just as planned, I just wish they'd eaten them like another three inches down. <laughs> so and be a good pinch. A perfect pinch. <laughs> so they walked past all the snaps, all the ever scabby, all the everything else and ate the Godisha gone. So that's what I use row cover for okay. is primarily for varmint and wind protection. However, we know because I use the biodegradable film on transplants, particularly for cool flowers with the black side up, that black film with a wire hoop, we use um, pre-arch number nine hoops. hoops. Um, and um, it makes for kind of a dreamy scene underneath that row cover. I just imagine all of our ground beetles pulling out their lawn chairs, putting their sunglasses <laughs> on, laying in the bigger. sun underneath there. It's because the wind is blocked. Yeah. You know, it's a happy place. So let's talk about how do you hold them down? Yeah, so, I mean, I live in a very windy site. Mm-hmm. So we use the sandbags and we put approximately 15 pounds of either gravel, sand, or soil, whatever you have. We use gravel because I've got a man that has a dump truck and brings it home. (laughs) 
And um, I put I put hoops down. We put hoops about every 10 feet, starting at the ends of the garden or the bed. And then we place three bags on each end so that you can spread the row cover out and put the, the weights on top. Okay. So it has something to hold on to. And then there's a weight at the foot of each hoop. Okay. So that means there's a bag every 10 feet on both sides and three at each end. And that's a lot of bags. But guess what? During windstorms, my hoop, my my covers do not come off. Good. Because um, that's one of the biggest pains in the butt is when it's freezing yeah. cold out there and you're like, oh, no, the, I see the sail up in the wind. <laughs> exactly. Or it's wrapped around the power lines speaking from firsthand experience. Oh, boy. <laughs> that sounds yeah. bad. <laughs> um, and so and because I use the lightweight and I really don't think any weight would sustain it, the clips and things that I see people talking about, I don't, you can't use those. It'll rip it no. once the wind yeah. starts. Yeah. So the bags only last a couple of seasons because they break down from UV rays. But when we're not using them, we keep them covered. That is what we use the landscape cloth for mm. now. We cover <laughs> our silage tarps and our weight bags to block the, the sun. UV. That's smart. Um, That's smart. Yeah. 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 And um, now, so quick we, question. Do you have a second hoop over your other hoops? Because I think no, you don't. No. OK, I thought no. I learned that from you, but maybe I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I think you're right. We we learned that from somebody, but it wasn't me. I saw okay. the same thing. But we, you know, Jenny, I mean, I feel like flower farming is hard enough. Business is hard enough. Keeping everything as simple as possible. Mm. And you need, I mean, it, it's like you don't need a lot of stuff, but you need the right stuff and enough of it. That's where yeah. I see people failing. They either don't have enough row cover or they don't have enough weight bags. Mm, mm. And then that leads them to not secure them properly. And then guess what happens? The covers rip yep. because they whip. And it's a vicious cycle. You know, it's like spend 30 more bucks and get enough bags and fill them and then protect them. And, um, you know, I feel like that's one of the reasons I have such great early, good condition plants in spring is yeah. because cover them and they stay covered. Okay. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I, you were the one that taught me about just the fact that it's wind protection and it's definitely made a huge difference because I cover things that don't even need covers, you know, now exactly. um, specifically for wind protection. Cause I also have a lot of wind. So <laughs> yeah. You now I think we just underestimate it. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I know that I did and, you know, think about standing outside in 50 degrees mm -hmm. with a pretty, not a big wind, but some wind with no coat on. Mm -hmm. You're not comfortable. It's not going to yeah. kill you. You yeah. wished you had died after several hours, but. <laughs> well, you, but you just can't I mean? thrive. Like, you can't thrive under those conditions, which is what we're exactly, asking plants to exactly. do. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. we always take covers down when any type of frozen precipitation. Okay. Is that was the question I had. Yeah. And snow. Um, because, you know, the year that Babs died, she died on January like 8th or 9th or some mm -hmm. right in the middle of our coldest time. And um, we got a, I mean, we actually could not go back to the vet to be with her when she was euthanized Aww. because they had closed all the bridges. Oh, no. Um, I didn't and, know that story. Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway, because it was such a blizzard going here. Well, needless to say, I hadn't taken my covers down. Right. And lost a lot of crops because okay. it was deep snow. It was about 10 inches. And then it stayed for days and days and days. And it smothers what's yeah. underneath. Yeah. Versus if the snow was on your plants, that totally would not have happened. Yeah, that's protection. You know, it's really 
good for them. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so um, covers come off if there's any sort of precipitation, freezing snow frozen, or rain frozen. or anything yeah. coming down. And then do you take covers off? I mean, I guess you just said you took them off because it was getting too warm, but then the deer came and plowed everything down. Yeah. Um, when do you start putting your covers on? Like for me, I don't put covers on now anymore until about Christmas time because we're just so warm here. And I have deer fence, so wow. it keeps the deer out. But do you have a temperature threshold that you're like, oh, covers go yeah. on or covers come off temperature wise? Yeah. So in general, we put, we install covers, the cup, co- the hoops are in, the covers are down, the weight bags are there. Cause that's a big job yeah. in itself, oh, you huge. know, so Bobo yeah. um, sees to all of that. And so they're ready and waiting. And so when it goes below 25 at night, generally for more than one night, which is just kind of an indicator that, okay, we're moving into mm-hmm. colder times. We put covers up okay. Um, and I will take them back down as I've just done. Although I'm so happy to say that's what I'm going to do. When we get off here is to put them back up. Ah, we got cold, cold coming, coming back. Yeah. When the temperatures go, um, start to creep up mm-hmm. above 50 degrees. And I look at the two week forecast and it's like, oh my gosh, the next seven days are going to be above 50. I bring them back yeah, down. Off. Okay. All right. But again, I only plant what survives my winter. My blank, my covers are just for, you know, to make them better. It's not there to save them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So do you have any tips for storing row cover? This is always my challenge. I I do oh, the daisy gosh. chain thing. I learned the daisy chain thing, which really helps, which is, I don't know how to describe it on here. So look up daisy chain um, row cover, but I still have mice and stuff get in mine all the time. So how do you store your row yeah. cover? So I'm sitting here looking at them right <laughs> over here. So um, because we sell Bio360 and package mm-hmm. it, we have tons of those heavy duty cardboard rolls, Ah. like big wrapping paper rolls. And the girls save them and Bobo brings them home here and we roll up. Ah. I mean, it's really easy. We kind of roll them up the way that we unroll um, netting and things. Um, So she just rolls them up onto there. And then we have these big canisters that we can just stick them in. They look like spaghetti sticking up (laughs) over there. Um, and that, because we have the same problem. I mean, rodents will get into yeah. your pot. They'll even get into this. Really? But oh my gosh. they're so organized. Well, not in right. here, right. but out in our storage shed. <laughs> yeah. But because of putting them on the rolls right. and they're so organized in such a tight spot, we just keep them here in the work building and we don't have that problem anymore. Yeah. So rolling it up on some kind of roll really works. Or, you know, what else I used to use is a big compost, um, like a fence, you know, a big, like a 36, it's um, plastic. It's a plastic product or just think of a piece of wire fence. You can't okay. use wire fence to rip. Right. But if you took a 10 foot piece of wire fence and cable tied it together to make a big cage, just like a cage. Do pop-ups, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's plastic and that'll just corral them in the corner. We would just pile the balls okay. in there. Okay. Um, okay. Um, but yeah. And, you know, I hear a lot of belly aching about the thinner, lighter weight row cover rips, and it definitely does rip easier. I'm telling you, it's not as good as it was 10 years ago, but if handled properly and stored properly, you'll still get several years use out of it. 
Okay. Yeah, I do. Str- I'm not going to lie. I struggle. I struggle with the night egg 19. Um, I did go up to the next weight, which I can't remember what it is now. I think it's um, egg 30. Yeah. And uh, it definitely lasts so much longer, the heavier weight stuff. But then also I, you can tell that there's just not nearly as much light transmission through. Uh, and I think that's not a big deal in the lowest light of the year when crops are fairly, you know, the Persephone period, things aren't really trying to push it all. But I think when you leave it on uh, for a month or two at a time, you're, you really start to to limit yeah. what a plant can do, particularly a plant that's trying to grow through the winter. Like it's one thing to put that on as just frost protection of something that needs a quick blanket, but it's another thing to basically subject a plant that's trying desperately to grow <laughs> to like you right. know 50% shade or whatever. So it's 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 definitely got its drawbacks as well. So I don't know. Yeah, and that's a really good point that, you know, people, when you use the heavier, if you're using it, through the winter, that definitely affects the growth of yeah. your plant, you yeah. know? So Things yeah, are like that's another in, good in shade. So, um, I think, I think we've hit like more than enough stuff to keep listeners satisfied. <laughs> the, the challenge always when I talk to you, Lisa, is that I have to just like make myself stop at some point because we really could go on for hours. Uh, is there anything last parting thoughts about your book? I want to make sure that we, we gave you a chance to, sure. um, Yeah, I really feel like the book, um, one of the other things that I really try to hit right at the beginning of the book is the cut flower concept, how to maintain how a cut flower garden works. But more importantly, is how people figure out when should they be planting cool season hardy annuals and warm season hardy annual, I mean, warm season tender annuals in your garden. Because that's the struggle we see people, they just don't know. They It's like they totally planting at the wrong time. And I understand it's a lack of information. It is a lack of the misuse. I talk about in the book that the word annual has been used so generally to represent warm season tender annuals for so long. When you say the word annual, people immediately think of tomatoes, basil, zinnias, sunflowers, the stuff that only grows in the summer. They don't even know cool season hardy annuals um, exist. And, you know, especially if you're a flower farmer, you need to learn the proper terminology. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to, I know I annoy people saying warm season tender annuals (laughs) and cool season hardy annuals. I don't just say cold annuals or it's like, I'm trying to remind people it's like very early spring planting, which is the time that we're heading into right now Mm -hmm. where we all should be starting seeds for Mm -hmm. that second planting of cool flowers. Um, Very early spring is like up to eight weeks before your last frost is when those boogers go in the ground. And, you know, anyway, so you got to learn your verbiage. And um, I'm hoping that the book will really help people grasp some of that because it just makes it easier. Yeah. That's the whole point. It has nothing to do with that. I want you to know those things. I could care less. (laughs) But it helps you to, it's like when you're equipped with that knowledge, you can grow anything. You don't have to ask any, Mm because I get the question all the time. When do I plant bells? When do I plant Rebecca? When it's like, if you knew when you planted cool season, hardy annuals, you wouldn't have to ask me about any of those. Right. And so people just don't know. And I'm hoping this book will answer that question that they may not even know they have yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm just, I just hope it empowers folks and um, super excited. It's hardback. 
oh, eight it by is. 10, oh. 140 pages. I didn't get the hardback. Yeah, it'll, be a, it'll be a beauty. <laughs> wow. And Suzanne took about 80 or 100 of the pictures. Oh. Our um, photographer had a death in his family and had to go out of country in April. Oh, of all times. Uh, one of the highest <laughs> bloom times. Yeah. So wow. fortunately, Suzanne just stepped in and did the job. And wow. so we're really pleased about that too. Yeah. So. Oh, that's cool. That's an extra personal touch then. So yeah. Um, yeah. Well, great. I can't wait to get my hands on the hardback version. Um, and I know I know people find it a very valuable resource, so thank you for doing that. And just to mention it real quick, we, we you and I also had another podcast episode last season here on No-Till Flowers about seed starting. So if anybody's listening yes. to this and they are too eager to wait for the book, though, you should definitely get the book. But you, right now, you can um, continue to learn about seed starting from Lisa um, in that episode. I'll link to it in the show notes so that everybody can grab that really easily. Well, thank you, Lisa. You're always such a gem and such a wealth of knowledge. And I'm, I'm really glad you came on today to talk to me. Well, thanks for having me. And the book is available for pre-order over at thegardenersworkshop.com. Oh. And I'd love to sign a copy for your listeners. <laughs> and um, we have some bonus stuff that comes along with it. So check it out. And Jenny, I just appreciate you and being here and um, being able to talk to your following. Yeah. Well, happy growing, everybody. We'll be back again soon. <laughs> well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil. Mm-hmm.